Welcome everyone. Uh, today we're hosting Maya Rubert Fox uh, uh, book launch of third text. Uh, this is part of the IAS book launch series in which uh, UCL academics are intending to have conversations with other academics of other disciplines and other institutions. So I'll leave it to you and thank you. Thank you. So welcome everyone. Um, and uh, we're going to speak about the uh, publication of actually existing uh, articles on the socialism and uh, we gave it another title, which is another article was possible, especially for this occasion, uh, because we want to really think about what kind of article it was then and what are the possibilities to think about it today. I just want to say that the uh, publication, the third, special issue of the third text, was based on a conference Ruben and I co-organized uh, with Kashak Museum in 2016, which was called Contested Spheres, actually existing articles on socialism, and uh, that was part of a bigger project in Kashak Museum, which was revisiting the um, art histories of Hungarian art uh, uh, of the 1960s and 70s, which was later published in the book uh, by Thompson Hudson, uh, Hungarian Art, uh, 1956 to 1980, called Double Speak. Um, and Magda was one of the co-contributors to that publication as well as us. This conference was separate and it was an invitation to think about how art will really function under socialism and it was um, uh, an invitation to think how we can uh, go beyond the binary opposite of official and unofficial art, how can we go beyond the usual narratives or, or, uh, of um, heroic, uh, uh, near-avant-garde and uh, uh, figures which form the system and so on, to think really how this, these figures existed in, in the real um, situations and how they negotiated the system at the time. And uh, uh, so most of the papers were given uh, in the conference and uh, uh, the rest, what, what was presented there and what is, what is published in the book is a story that Ruben can tell us about, because he is one of the editors of the third text and the one who worked most on the publication. Well, just in terms of the of the of the, of the editing and the process where, where people uh, develop their texts over a period of time from 2016 till it was actually published at the uh, end of uh, last year, the end of 2018. But I wanted to uh, say something uh, about the the title uh, of the uh, of the, of the special issue. So uh, uh, and. Um, uh, you know, th thinking about the idea of actually existing art worlds of socialism, as as some of you, maybe many of you, might know, this is a, a reference to uh, Rudolf Barrow, the East 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 German dissident Marxist uh, phrase that he came up came up with, or he popularized in the late seventies of uh, act actually uh, existing socialism, which he which he he developed this phrase to sort of distinguish between uh, socialism. As, a, as an ideal, or what he as a, as a Marxist theorist imagined and hoped for socialism, and what he and other people actually experienced in, in East Germany, so the actually existing socialism, which somehow for him fell short uh, of those ideals uh, of socialism. But as, as this special issue, as the contributors uh, kind of explore, 
uh, a lot of the problems of actually existing socialism actually turned out to be quite uh, productive and uh, generative of uh, distinct artistic positions. And uh, on the other hand, what's also very important to say at the beginning is that while there wasn't an, uh, an art market and a lot of the things that you generally would you know, associate with the international art world, in Eastern Europe, there was definitely was an economy. So there was a socialist art economy, and artists worked within it. And as as we already said, that's that 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 was one of the main things that uh, the uh, uh, the conference and the and the special issue investigated. And and um, maybe just to, to fill that out a little bit, I'll just uh, mention a few of these aspects of actually existing socialism or actually existing art worlds of socialism. Uh, which, uh, 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 which which were productive for artists. So one one thing was um, uh, that uh, uh, actually actually existing socialism was not just different from this ideally idealized version of socialism. It was also different from the somewhat harsher uh, version of socialism and the socialist art world that came before in the 1950s under Stalinism associated with socialist realism. And um, what actually happened by the 60s. Uh, was that uh, uh, it was no longer just ministries of culture that were sort of directly, you know, Communist Party officials directly deciding everything about the art world. It had become more bureaucratic. Uh, it had developed this sort of infrastructure, and uh, it was a bit like uh, a, a sort of arms-length system. So it was kind of an, an arts council-style arms-length system in practice, that, uh, uh, which meant that there were actually artists and professionals on a lot of these committees which were in charge of censorship but also uh, about making decisions about funding and jobs and so on and so it could be that uh, you know if an artist had a, uh, a friend who was on a committee that could also be very influential so artists had ways of influence, influencing the, the decision making process and uh, for example in one of the um, contributors texts uh, Thomas Poshpiesel's text uh, he, talk, he talks about the way that architects in, in uh, Czechoslovakia at the time uh, were the most important people on these committees which were deciding how to spend the, uh, the percentage uh, uh, of building project budgets that were allocated to uh, individual artworks, which was quite a, lot, uh, quite a lot. It was up to 4% for individual artworks and the architect was key. So in a way, this is an shows how you know, for, for artists it was most important to... Um, have a good relationship with the architects, maybe more important than ideology. It's just sort of an example of, of, the, of, of how things actually functioned uh, in, in practice. Um, uh, also, again, to, to, to think about this idea that there wasn't an art market, but there very much was an economy, a socialist art economy, and the state was very active in purchasing artworks and commissioning artworks uh, uh, throughout the period. And uh, you know, as Hungarian artist uh, Dora Maurer uh, said uh, not that long ago, she said, oh, during the 60s, I had like, a, there was a Dora Maurer A and a Dora Maurer B. And so the Dora Maurer A was her experimental practice, but and the Dora Maurer B was what she did for official uh, commissions. I to find that. So this, this is... Um, so th this, this is one of her Dora Maurer B works. So perhaps you, uh, uh, you know, know her, 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 her abstract work that she was doing, but she was also doing these graphic works, the arrest of Salai, you know, of uh, you know, the uh, uh, fascist figure Salai and the communists and the police coming in. So here was a really kind of ideological work that she was doing in parallel. But if you think about it, it's not uh, uh, necessarily such a disadvantage that she had to do these 
Beeworks. So it provided her with an income and she was able in parallel to continue her uh, experimental uh, career as well. And uh, in fact, you know, as she's got more and more successful internationally, you know, people are also very interested in these bee works as well. So it's, uh, there are also exhibitions of these official works are also a very uh, uh, interesting. Um, and, and, and really, as, as, as all, I think, all the uh, uh, texts in the, uh, in the special issue make clear, uh, that it wasn't really possible to, to be totally separate from the art system. Even the most radical the avant-garde all had some kind of interaction uh, with, with the uh, uh, official art world. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, while they were taking, place in, taking part sometimes in, in official exhibitions with some kinds of work they were producing, uh, they also were finding spaces to exhibit uh, more provocative works that maybe couldn't be shown in uh, uh, the official, uh, officially controlled or funded uh, art system. Um, uh, so they were, for example, taking very often they took over non-art spaces. So, uh, you know, for example, the, the Communist Party youth organization might have a space and they would do an exhibition there. And there was a sort of cat and mouse game where the young avant-garde artists were always somehow trying to say one step ahead uh, of the authorities. And they really, they were managing to uh, show their work in many cases, and uh, also uh, another, they could also take advantage of different aspects of the art system, the socialist art system, which were quite uh, 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 conducive to to experimentation, or that they could they could make use of. Like for example, the the state was very invested in the idea of adult education and uh, uh, you know public programs, and so uh, as Daniel Gruden's text in the Special issue explores amateur art was a very big thing in for Czechos especially for Czechoslovak uh, for Slovak new avant-garde artists in the 60s and 70s, and uh, they, you know it was a way of uh, of providing income for them. So they were teaching um, amateur artists, people who were just like interested in trying out, were not professional artists on summer camps, you know, during the 60s and 70s. But these were also great spaces and uh, possibilities for doing really experimental, dematerialized practices with no one really watching. So there, there, there was, there, that was one other really very uh, uh, concrete sort of structure of the art world which, was, uh, uh, which artists took advantage of. Another thing which is, I think, really important to mention, and which was a real kind of institutional difference between the socialist and capitalist uh, art worlds or art structures at the time, was the fact that artists uh, had the possibility to take part in kind of collective residencies, these colonies that took place in uh, socialist factories. And uh, while in the 50s there was this, uh, it, uh, basically they, they, they were uh, brought to factories to make paintings and drawings illustrating the building of socialism, the heroism of what was going on, and that is like an interesting and worthwhile topic in its own right. But by the 60s, things had, had developed, and actually going to the factories was about uh, artists having the opportunity to use the materials and the machines of the factory uh, to, to produce work. And, um, sorry, where the machine And uh, here, is this one? Okay, sorry. And, uh, you know, so, so th I mean, this is quite interesting. This is uh, George Galantai, who, uh, you know, is a, you know, very much well-known for... Uh, setting up, uh, uh, being very involved in the Balton Bogla artist group, New Avangard artist group in the early 70s. Here you have him in 1980 with his famous work, Homage to Veramukina in Budapest's Hero Square, a famous performative, rebellious work. 
Well, a year, a year before that, he was at the Dunai Varosh uh, uh, Steel uh, Symposium for, for a week, producing this huge work using the materials and so on. And, and it's not really a, necessarily any contradiction uh, between that. That was just how um, uh, artists um, uh, uh, found their way through, through the system that they were faced with. And uh, you know, it's, it's also interesting to know that uh, artists who took part in the Dunai Virus Symposium had their food, accommodation, all their costs covered, and they also re received an artist fee. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was kind of a, an interesting situation. And uh, this is the, as you may have seen, the, the cover. This is the sort of full-width version of the image <coughs> on, the, on the cover of the special issue. And it's Laszlo Lachner's The Protest of Buddhist Monks of Saigon from 65. And, you know, in, in art history, also international art history already now, it's seen as a, as a sort of, a, of an, impo as an important work and staging post for the development of a distinctive East European version of uh, pop art, you know, especially the way he, you know, uses uh, this... Uh, uh, that sort of references to, to mass media representations and, and where it would have been different uh, prints in, in very often in pop art here he's actually hand painted everything so in terms of art it's seen as very interesting as a type of uh, pop art but it's also uh, important to know that it was actually produced in 1965 for, the, uh, for a very much a state official exhibition of Hungarian artists against fascism so it was very much like a state commission, and this is a really you know, anti-American, anti-Vietnam uh, war uh, work about the, uh, some atrocities against Buddhist monks, which the Americans were uh, to blame for in the, in, the, uh, in the early 60s. So again, you know, you know, what do you do with that? You have artists who are uh, uh, experimental artists, uh, progressive artists, and on the other side, they're also... Maybe, maybe in some, some aspects they found some common ground, some commonalities with, um, uh, with, with uh, the official state ideology in terms of international solidarity, uh, for uh, example. And, um, uh, you know, maybe just one more thing just to say before I, I close my introduction is just, just to say that at the same time, we, you know, we have to uh, recognise that, that very often, especially by the end of the 70s, you know, this any kind of collaboration or common ground between experimental artists, new avant-garde artists, and the state. Very often, it came up against a certain limit because there was a certain way that they could go, and then the kind of problems of the system did uh, step in. And uh, uh, you know, the, especially after 1968, the end of this dream of socialism with the human face. Uh, you know, by the se the 70s, and as the 70s wore on, uh, the possibility of any kind of genuine collaboration between uh, more radical wing of the, the avant-garde and um, uh, kind of uh, renewed version of socialism uh, declined or, or were in crisis. But that's not actually what we want to focus on here. So what we really want to think about, so I invite our speakers to think about, is, uh, 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 it's, it's, it's really to see how, how things also have unfolded since 89. You know, how, how do we think about the socialist, that socialist art system in the view of uh, the you know the evident failings of this global capitalist market-based art system, which has colonised more and more spaces within the, the art world. You look at the you know this, this Venice Biennial is practically you know a version of an art fair, as many people have uh, noted, or the way that museum policies of collecting uh, and exhibiting are very influenced by the interests of certain oligarchic collectors, perhaps. 
and you know, based on the idea of more and more profit. So, you know, with this in mind, what can we salvage from uh, the experience of uh, socialist uh, art worlds? And you know, this alternative uh, title—it's not up there anymore—of uh, you know, another art world was possible. Again, this is a as a as a clear reference to the uh, um, the um, World Social Forum's motto: uh, "Another world is possible." Uh, and uh, you know, it's it's a reminder that the, the idea is to re to remind ourselves that there hasn't always just been one art system. For a long time, there was uh, an alternative to this very market-based, uh, centralized kind of monocultural circuit of this Western version of contemporary art. There was another another alternative uh, system, and whether it, it is still uh, possible, or will ever ever will will there ever again be another? Uh, another art world uh, is, in a way is open to debate it's still an open question which maybe we can try and take some steps uh, towards can I throw it over to you to introduce this? <laughs> okay. so we're very glad to uh, have with us today Magda who flew from Poznan and uh, she, because you took, it took you the furthest way to come I will introduce you first Magda Radomska is post-Marxist art historian and historian of philosophy, assistant professor at Adam Mickiewicz University in Poznan in Poland. She holds a PhD in art history and has received scholarship at Kotel Institute in London, the Hungarian Academy of Sciences in Budapest, Edward Laurent University in Budapest. She was the director and lecturer of the course Writing Humanities after the fall of communism in 2009 at Central European University in Budapest. In 2013, her book, the Politics of Movements of Hungarian Neo Avantgarde, 66 to 1980, was published. Currently, Rudomska is engaged in a research on post communist and post, post communist art and post communist Europe, uh, which, for which she received a grant from National Science Center and Criticism of Capitalism in Art. Uh, and her forthcoming, or the book was published, The Plot Always Forthcoming. It's forthcoming. forthcoming. Uh, the plural subject, Art and Crisis after 2008. And she's also uh, her second PhD is writing on monograph on post-Marxism. She's a member of both Polish and Hungarian ICA, an editor of art magazine Kultury, and she's a founder of Piotr Petrovsky Center for Research on East Central uh, European Art based in Poznan. Okay. Uh, second furthest <laughs> tonight is from Anthony Gardner, who came from Oxford, and he's the head of a school at uh, um, uh, Ruskin School of Art at University of Oxford, where he teaches contemporary art history and theory and is a fellow of the Queen's College. He's published widely on subjects including post-colonialism, post-socialism and cultural histories, and is editor of uh, MIT Press Journal Art Margins. Among his books, uh, Mapping South, Journeys in South-South Cultural Relations, which was published in 2013, Politically Unbecoming Post-Socialist Art Against Democracy by MIT Press in 2015, and also MIT Press 2015 is the uh, uh, co-editor co co of the anthology Noi Slovenische Kunst from Capital to Capital, uh, which was a fine, and this book was a finalist of the 2017 Alfred Barr Award for Best Exhibition Catalog Worldwide. His latest book, which is co-authored with Charles Green, uh, is Biennial Strenials and Documenta, the Exhibitions that Created Contemporary Art, published by Wiley Blackwell in uh, 2016. So, welcome. And uh, very locally, <laughs> welcoming uh, Marko Ivic, who is a Liverpool Early Career Fellow at UCLC's. 
His uh, current research project explores the intersections between contemporary art and politics in post-social societies, focusing on post-Yugoslav context. This project stems from his PhD, which was the first comprehensive study of Yugoslav's alternative art spaces between 65 and 89, known as student culture, student culture centers. His articles have been published in third text and art margins, and he contributed a chapter to collaboration at this contents, which is a book portal book online from 2017. He's also currently working on a monograph entitled Self-Management, the New Art Practice in Yugoslavia 1966-89. Before joining CIS, he worked as an associate lecturer at Portal Institute of Art and a teaching fellow in art history at Newcastle University. So welcome and uh, would, you, would you like to start perhaps? Me? Thank you. Uh, you are first on the list. Sure, okay. As so long as you don't mind. Yeah, okay. Um, hello everyone. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming uh, on such a balmy summer's evening. Um, before I begin, I want to just congratulate uh, the contributors and the editors to the volume. I think it's a really remarkable uh, volume of third text, and the essays are wonderful to read. It's a fantastic mix of uh, people from different backgrounds, generations, and so forth. So. Congratulations to all of the contributors and to the editors, because as an editor of a journal myself, I know exactly the kind of hard labour that sometimes is involved, along with the sweat and tears of the writers, um, too. I'm going to try to keep things brief. I've got some notes on my phone, because you're not really here to <coughs> listen to me. Yeah, lovely, thank you. <clears throat> so I'm going to start off with a shameless plug. It's not really a plug at all, but it kind of is. Um, so as uh, Maya was saying, uh, I've done a few books. Uh, my area of focus hasn't really been, thank you, 60s, 70s. Can you hear me up the back there? Or do you want me to stand up? I'll stand up. Sorry. Is this better? <laughs> if I speak like that? Brilliant. Okay. Um, my area hasn't really been looking at the 60s and 70s. I'm much more, have been much more engaged in uh, work from the late 70s to the 80s and afterwards. Uh, this not so much about the, the, those utopian ideals in a sense, but what happens in the collapse of those ideals and utopias from earlier. So looking at the artistic transformations, very significant artistic transformations, amid many other kinds of significant transformations, particularly uh, in terms of political culture at the time, what happens with disappointments, frustrations. We talked about that with socialism, but it also is very closely connected with notions of capitalism, and as my uh, Politically Unbecoming book was exploring, was thinking through why artists were being very critical of the notion of democracy as a political culture in the later 70s, but certainly through the 80s in particular parts of Europe, and then what the legacies of that kind of thinking, both in art and politics, might be for reimagining what was happening after 89. So through the 1990s, the neoliberalization of Europe, and in a post-9-11, post-invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, framing of democracy as it was uh, being hollowed out, in a sense, by certain parts of the world. Enaskar, the group from Ljubljana, uh, that uh, I was connected with uh, the anthology in 2015 was kind of an ideal case study for this because they had uh, been working through the 1980s and then had to reimagine what they would do once uh, the state of Yugoslavia had collapsed, once the political systems, and as William was saying, the 
different modes of economy had transformed, how did an, a huge arts organization respond to that situation in order to keep developing their artistic and political cultures through their practices? So that was then. In the time since, um, I have been much more interested in going back to the, 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 the late 50s, but certainly the 1960s into the 1970s. Uh, I got a little bit tired of the depressive, disappointed side of, of what was happening after 1980. And what I have uh, been shifting towards instead, and something that comes through in this, this issue of Third Text as well, uh, in some of the essays, is thinking uh, about sort of the meta or parallel sides of art practice. So a lot of the, the texts, are, a lot of our thinking has been about art practices, and rightly so, but I've also been interested in that meta side, <coughs> in particular exhibitions. You know, what are exhibitions and, and curating, not that curating is the term being used, but sort of exhibition making, what was happening in those uh, frameworks in the 1960s and 1970s? Something that, that is connected with this as well, and I think it's something maybe we can talk about, is in these, uh, this special issue, is how often it's not just the art, but also the writers from that period who become this really important uh, whirlwind of possibility, a different way of thinking about uh, art worlds and, and, and uh, political cultures through art. So whether it be figures like uh, Yeshin de Negri, uh, Lazar Becker, uh, Mikhail Shuvalkovich, etc., etc., etc. So I think that's part of this, this framing as well as thinking about what are the legacies of those writers that we have learned enormously from, uh, who central to what was happening in the 60s and 70s as well, but still, in many respects, still practicing together. But back to this. So one of the things that I have been trying to explore is what were the different kinds of worlds being thought through exhibitions? Because a lot of my work has been focusing on uh, Yugoslavia, the particular, uh, it's a very particular kind of cultural histories that we have to explore with that. And Maya's done some really phenomenal work in this area in particular. But thinking about uh, a different notion of socialism as its international focus of the non-aligned movement, for instance, or different ways of thinking about how socialism might operate not just within Eastern and Central Europe, but actually socialism is something that goes far beyond Europe's borders, as they were then and as they are now. And uh, that's been a very important consideration for me, is, is thinking a bit more expansively about what socialism and therefore post-socialism might mean. Uh, it was part of the Politically Unbecoming book, but it's increasingly the case as well. You know, the discourse now is very much about global south, but what can we learn from both the possibilities and maybe the failures, uh, including the autocracies of the non-aligned movement, as well as how it was affecting not just political cultures at that time, but exhibition cultures and artistic cultures as well, how these two come together. And maybe, dare I raise the B word, but uh, you know, thinking about how we can think differently about socialism and internationalism as it's operating in Brexit, this might be a very important way of considering what's going on. On the one hand, of course, in relation to xenophobia as it's operating within this country and elsewhere, but also, I would say, a very protective left wing that has also been quite in favour of Brexit, uh, but very different from the internationalisms that's also operating within and through notions of socialism as they've been explored 
in something like these images are from the uh, uh, graphics biennial in Ljubljana, in the Medana Galleria in Ljubljana, on the right-hand side from 1955, which was the first of the uh, graphics biennials there, and on the left-hand side from 1961, this sense of all these different countries from across the political divide, across the political spectrum, all over the world, coming together and emblematized with this, uh, what would you call it, almost like a flag teepee of sorts out the front of of the, the gallery. So what are exhibitions doing that is related to broader uh, political cultural context, but maybe also doing something different? And that has been something that I've wanted to explore, as well as how these histories might not only be affecting the way we think about, say, global art histories or even global politics today, but the ways that they might transform uh, how we might approach curatorial history. So a new discipline that's emerging within the last 10 years, five years or so, of curatorial histories that maybe is different from exhibition histories. Whose work might be part of this, this framework? Why might certain curators or collaborations uh, resonate from this period more than others? And this has been a really interesting thing, again, in relation to Yugoslavia, where a key figure such as Zoran Krzyzysznik, who you see top right, obviously hopefully you recognise the figure top left, there is not a curator, or maybe he is kind of a curator. <laughs> that's a controversial statement. <laughs> but, that's um, but this figure is Zoran Krzyzysznik, who is absolutely this embodiment of a kind of intriguing socialist cosmopolitanism in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s. He is in many respects uh, the forerunner for the kinds of global curators that we might be uh, much more circumspect about now. Ruben was talking about how the Venice Biennale is kind of an art fair of sorts, but these curators who flit around the world picking up artists from different places, supposed to be interested in lots of different places, the forerunners for that aren't just the Harold Zaymans of this world, they're actually figures like Zoran Krzyzysznik as well as some of his counterparts. You see the jury there from, I think it's 1965, Ljubljana, figures from the Soviet Union as well as from France and Austria. But even within Yugoslavia, there is this competition for thinking differently about what worlds might mean. And that's been really fascinating. So not just some like Krzyzysznik, but other figures such as the Belgrade-based curator of Otto Bihangarin, whose notion of world art then emerges in 1972 for the cultural Olympiad associated with the Munich Games, the Munich Olympics, which was called uh, World Culture and Modern Art. What his notion of worldings is, or world art at this particular time, it's quite different from Krzyzysznik's much more contemporary, but also quite, uh, and sometimes quite progressive, sometimes quite conservative view of what that those worlds, those different worlds might mean in relation to a particular time in Yugoslavia's history. That's then complicated again, and I think this is where the work of somebody like Alan Bedosh is very interesting, by uh, new tendencies and its own reworlding that's operating at about the same time, as well as the journals and other writers, such as Praxis Journal, which I think Armin was also writing about. So I'm going to leave it there. I mean, it's very much about thinking not only uh, <coughs> through what was possible at that time, but I think also recognising that those worlds have come to an end. They have failed. We can't just return to nostalgia, to amnesia, but this is nonetheless of a critical revamping for what might be happening in a sort of an austerity-driven environment, in a context where it's not just Dora doing it, sort of art practice A, art practice B, the same thing is happening with biennials today, where you have more biennial practice, 
and you have your, say, uh, critical practice, or you might have your conceptual, post-conceptual practice, that might not fit in in the same way with the binomial system, but nonetheless is actually operating, particularly in parts of East Asia, more so than, than say, in Europe. It's still happening in Europe. What those, those considerations in the past, how they're being filtered today in a hyper-capitalist despite austerity, etc. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think there's some great uh, food for discussion in, in uh, what you uh, presented. That's really great, but maybe, maybe we can go around first, mm. uh, so we'll speak, and then we can open it up to a discussion. Magda, I'd like to invite you. Thank you, thank you. Next. So, um, thank you very much for inviting me to the panel, and I would like also to congratulate on the volume because I find it very relevant and coherent, uh, which is very rare in case of such volumes uh, that uh, the volume is like presents such coherency. Um, what I find uh, here interesting is um, the frame that can be given to this. Uh, as Maya said, I'm post-Marxist. Our historian I identify myself with post-Marxism uh, approach. So approach with this uh, Marxist frame. Uh, this volume uh, represents more, like most texts gathered here, or even all of them, um, represents the attitude uh, that makes possible suspension, abrogation, or even invalidation of uh, a series of binary oppositions um, that uh, structure the whole narrative on uh, socialist art or art uh, during socialism in communist countries. Um, it appears in the text, like uh, from the very first text by uh, uh, Tomasz Pospieszył about Zobek, um, uh, and he invalidates such notions like official and unofficial art, but also visible and invisible art. Uh, he, he talks about visibility and visibility, presence and absence uh, in the public space of uh, those uh, works by Zubek. It appears also in the text by uh, Tomasz Zawuski, um, who is my colleague from, from uh, my Łódź, um, and uh, he approaches art of uh, Zofia Kwiek and Przemysław Kulik from that perspective that uh, offers impossible, uh, like, uh, uh, finds impossible uh, to, uh, to discuss whether or not this art was official. Um, uh, and uh, this kind of emotional and uh, practical and theoretical note um, is um, uh, for, uh, is formed by the text um, about Gabor Bodhi uh, by um, Shimoni, uh, who um, speaks about his uh, involvement in the secret service uh, um, uh, structures and uh, um, and invalidates the opposition which is uh, formed between progressive artists and someone who is serving the regime. And that's a very important uh, problem which was raised by Ruben a minute, few minutes before. I mean uh, the opposition of uh, progressive art and art uh, serving the regime. 
I strongly objected because I think that from today's perspective, uh, the art which was uh, communists uh, or um, um, or um, with a Marxist background it can be perceived as much more progressive than the artists who produce seemingly universal art, uh, which was the Polish case, for instance. Um, and why um, um, today's artists are very leftist engaged? Why not to um, uh, invalidate also this opposition? Um, so, um, yeah, uh, and uh, uh, the crucial text, the most important text in this volume, I would uh, think of a text of Armin Medosh, uh, who um, not only uh, in very nice uh, way, uh, he somehow refers to the title of the whole volume, because uh, uh, there's actually existing states of socialism uh, um, problematize uh, this, uh, the notion of the, uh, of the practice which uh, is also by itself uh, in uh, Marx's uh, text uh, of a dialectical structure is, um, uh, according to Marx, impos is, is impossible to distinguish be between a theory and practice. Uh, but I mean that your intention probably was to, uh, to refer to something uh, which resides in the realm of reality or practice, practice of, uh, of socialism. Yeah? So uh, Medosh not only addresses this issue in his text by uh, referring to the Korchula famous group on, uh, on, uh, which, which was called Praxis and gathered both um, uh, Eastern European and Western European Marxist thinkers um, in, in this way, invalidating uh, the status, um, uh, primary status of Iron Curtain, uh, but also uh, he goes further uh, with uh, his um, uh, uh, with his ideas using Marxist. Uh, he's the only one who uses Marxist uh, Marxism as a tool uh, in his uh, in his analysis. Thomas Zawuski also had a chance to do it because, uh, for instance, referring and he. He, he did it to a uh, limited extent, uh, referring to Kulik uh, and and Kulik, who were openly communist uh, um, uh, artists. Uh, they, they declared they, um, um, they um, let's say, loyalty to communism, and they were really fighting for commissions, uh, which they wouldn't receive so easily, uh, despite the, their engagement. Uh, but uh, and here, um, for instance, he could use the the notion of uh, of uh, alienation <coughs> or um, or uh, abolishment of the division of labor. Uh, which, in case of uh, artists selling it, uh, um, artists uh, to, to, to the, 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 the title is artists uh, which can be bought or something like this, uh, which could be um, uh, easily used. But um, uh, he um, he resigned from that. So I found that uh, that this Medosh uh, text is uh, is of crucial importance here. And now I would like to uh, I would like to proceed uh, and to analyze certain entries that are crucial for. The volume as such, as such, I would say, um, and the um, first, uh, your title.
cycle, which is very uh, intriguing, and I would uh, translate it to Marxist terms as um, uh, analyzing the uh, inner contradictions of socialism or communism, because you actually, in the introduction, use both words, which is not so common among the authors of the volume, which mostly use the notion of socialism. Uh, I find it peculiar, but I will uh, elaborate on this later. Uh, but you don't mention actually important context of Howard Becker book uh, published in the 80s, um, which is entitled uh, Artworks. And uh, it establishes a nice frame to this volume, to your volume, because uh, what he writes about uh, is uh, the notion of the artworks, uh, which um, uh, conditions every artwork created as um, as collaborative, uh, as uh, as um, as common and as shared. Uh, and this um, establishes a significant background to uh, today's um, uh, in, in, uh, essential narrative or, uh, on artworks and, um, and art laborers, uh, which is a very significant uh, uh, narrative uh, today. Um, so, um, and um, uh, and uh, I would like to uh, um, to propose. Um, a frame um, uh, to to frame. I, I mean, uh, to propose a frame uh, uh, to this volume, which would be uh, of a Marxist origin, um, and um, I would like to discuss the notion uh, offered by Daniel Grün from that perspective. I mean, uh, I mean uh, the notion of uh, amateurism, yeah, amateurism, uh, which I find highly problematic because uh, what he claims in his text is that uh, amateur. Uh, he, he coins the notion of amateur uh, uh, to state that uh, the uh, amateur act is uh, individual subversive act. I feel that he falls into this kind of binary opposition of, uh, of shared uh, collective and individual, which is of a Western capitalist-oriented hegemony, uh, which is not true because he analyzed, um, for instance, works by Milan Adamczyk, uh, and which are of a, um, of a um, common and, um, um, and uh, collective nature. Um, so... Um, uh, with this notion, he could uh, he could uh, talk about abolishment of the division of labor and abolishment of the class division, but he uh, he does not elaborate on that. Um, and also the the notion of the network, which also I find problematic because uh, I know that the, it has a long history in art history. And for instance, uh, Clara Kempwelsh uh, has written her uh, new book on that, and she is aware of this context that I'm going to refer in a minute. But um, somehow this notion of a network abolishes the notion of the collective, and the collective is not um, um, not, uh, not anymore in the center of the narrative uh, or and of the discussion. Um, um, and um, uh, and again, um, uh, the notion of communism, uh, which you use in your uh, in your uh, introduction, uh, but uh, is uh, which is not very common amongst uh, among the the authors of the of that volume, uh, which I think it should be rediscussed uh, as a relevant because I understand why it's not being in use. 
uh, and that's before because uh, communism functioned as a certain horizon, yeah, that uh, has never been realized. But on the other hand, socialism uh, also has this status, and uh, I am going to refer here to uh, publications by Ivan Seleni or Eleanor Tansley that prove that uh, uh, that this kind of economic um, uh, structure was never uh, introduced uh, fully or even at all. Uh, that probably uh, um, what we had was a version of capitalism without private owners, uh, and that has to be um, uh, discussed. So um, now concluding and coming to the present situation, I would think that this publication is crucial because it offers uh, to invalidate binary oppositions while discussing the uh, binary, traditionally uh, acknowledged as binary uh, structure of the Cold War. Uh, and uh, it also uh, establishes a, a good frame for uh, bringing um, uh, to the light the notion of the labor and division of the labor and the class division, which are not, uh, uh, not present in the text as such, but uh, uh, it is a, a huge uh, step towards uh, this frame. Um, and the conclusion would be, because uh, of course there, are, uh, there is a narrative on um, art workers and, uh, and the labor which is, uh, um, which is given by uh, such authors as Julia Bryan Wilson or Hans Abing about uh, the artist's poverty, uh, which is uh, now uh, really relevant in post-communist Europe uh, <coughs> in relation to the art produced after 89 and especially after 2008, after the financial crisis. Uh, but, um, but I think that, um, that both art produced before 89 and after 89 uh, should be revised, uh, should be accounted for uh, Marxism and should be uh, revised with a Marxist uh, dictionary and narrative because uh, once you adapt a different tool, you can come to very different conclusions. Um, and uh, when we discuss Dora Maurer, A, a and B version of her identity, I need to claim uh, that uh, probably it's really much harder to escape the hegemony of capitalism than it was to escape uh, um, the word of uh, socialism and communism. Um, and today, I, I really uh, think there is a strong need to uh, reapproach those narrative with this Marxist background because many of those artists were, like Laszlo Lachner, were, were closely related to Marxist background, and uh, and that this tool can uh, um, can contribute to to reapproach. And uh, therefore, I find this uh, volume crucial uh, in this aspect. And thank you very much for that. I also wanted to thank the Ruben for all the hard work he's put into this special issue and I'm very grateful to have been involved in the project and the conference from which it stemmed as well. Um, so as speakers today we've been asked to give a short 10 minute presentation which reflects on the kind of significance of this journal uh, with regards to uh, to the existing kind of narratives on art from socialist Europe in the 1960s and 1970s, and also to try to contextualize them today and to think about their legacies from a, a kind of current uh, perspective. So as a kind of point of entry into the discussion, I thought I'd begin by taking us back to 1979. 
and this exhibition that took place at Amsterdam's The Apple Foundation called Works and Words. Um, has anyone come across this exhibition before? Yeah. Um, some of you might be familiar with the artist who's featured on the catalogue uh, on the right. It's um, Julius Koller, who's actually featured in one of the essay contributions in the, in the special issue. Um, so according to this exhibition's catalogue, Works and Words was supposed to create a confrontation between artists who share a common sensibility from Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Yugoslavia and the Netherlands. It was a manifestation which was focused on the dialectical interaction of reflection and action of works and words. But before this exhibition took on this seemingly universal, general and kind of inclusive stance, it was in fact intended to be a presentation of artists from the monolithic and homogenous Eastern Europe. Um, it was intended to feed the deep curiosities of audiences in Amsterdam of art from behind the seemingly impenetrable Iron Curtain. And many of the artists who took part in this exhibition found this problematic, to say the least. One of the participating artists from Yugoslavia, called Gordon Djordjevic, responded to the letter of invitation from the organisers with the following critique. They, the artists from Eastern Europe, are practically forced to accept any offer, since these are rare occasions when their work has a recognised artistic status. And on the other hand, this exhibition should explicitly or implicitly reaffirm the unlimited freedom of artistic activities and universality of cultural artistic practices of the West. In that way, the significance of such, ghetto of such a ghetto exhibition is mainly reduced to its political dimensions, dissident, exotic. While the nature of the works themselves, their character and significance are pushed to the background. So after receiving this letter, the curator of the exhibition decided to take a slightly softer start from their initial plan. So they dropped the label of Eastern Europe to avoid framing the, the exhibition according to the ge uh, Cold War geopolitical fault lines. They introduced this more universal title and integrated the works of Dutch artists alongside their Eastern European counterparts. So already in 1979, this Yugoslav artist, Gordon Drogevic, had picked up on and critiqued what would become, after the transformations of 1989, the totalizing and all-encompassing Eastern European paradigm, the one which relies on the stable and sturdy uh, opposition between a totalitarian socialist state on the one hand and a suffering, struggling and resisting artist on the other. And in any, many ways, I think that this gesture kind of prefigures or foreshadows this very famous work, which many of you have probably come across before. Mladen um, Stalinovich's, an artist who cannot speak English, is no artist. So again, on first impression, this seems like a very straightforward critique. It, on what looks like a kind of handmade protest banner, the statement, an artist who cannot speak English is no artist, seems like a pointed aphorism of the dominance of the English-speaking art world over the less visible regions. It seems like a cut-cutting commentary on, the, on an apparently global art world, which in spite of its claims to inclusivity, denies access to those without the necessary languages and technologies. Although I think that the work's slightly more complex because of how uh, native and non-native speakers actually address this, this kind of uh, aphorism or this statement. But for a long time, I would say that the stories presented in this special issue were expected to speak English, uh, so to speak. 
in the sense that they were required to adhere to very particular set of preconceptions usually bestowed on exotic Eastern European artists as these individuals struggling against repressive socialist regimes and its powerful system of institutions. Um, and it speaks very, the way that Eastern European art history was historicized uh, since 1989, I think speaks a lot, speaks volumes about how very often local and regional art histories beyond the rim of the North Atlantic are often are adjusted to fit the authority of what still remains a predominantly Euro-American art history. One rooted in very uh, linear and singular kind of uh, uh, concepts of the recent past. So I think that this special issue counters these expectations, to say the least, because it avoids these prescriptive frames and takes into consideration the more complex and, in my opinion, more relevant political, economic and institutional factors that determined art produ arts production and reception in socialist Europe in the 1960s and 1970s. So all of the contributions featured in the issue proposed that art produced under actually existing socialism was profoundly shaped by the structures of the overarching systems. They all take into consideration the everyday functioning of, the, of art scenes across the region, which often entailed artists making a range of compromises and working through and within so-called official art systems. And in doing so, they provide an important restructuring of the binaries uh, of official and unofficial that are all too often assumed in the study of socialist Europe's art scenes in the absence of a Western-style art market and, in many instances, direct state control. But what I found similar to Magda particularly striking and noteworthy is how this restructuring is ultimately undertaken through a focus on political economy, albeit to varying degrees. And I think that this turn is very much symptomatic of a crisis which indicates the post-1989 regime of the end of history, um, which has now reached a dead end, and that it seems that history is very much, return, very much returning now today. So to take an example that Magda also referred to, Armen Medosh's study of the international art movement New Tendencies, which emerged in Zagreb and Croatia in 1961, it's interesting how he chose to follow this development alongside some key transformations in the 20th century and the transition from Fordism to the post-Fordist information society. Similar with Tomasz Szczawski's essay on Kwikulikduro, which talks about the kind of their engagement with the so-called potboiler art economy in Poland and with official art commissions. Um, and I think that this focus on uh, art's political economy in socialist Europe is important because of the new horizons it might open up um, to the broader project of globalising art history. So the questions that arise, how can art history be locally rooted or regionally rooted even, but globally connected at the same time? It raises questions about how, how art history can forge and sustain a non-hierarchical and decentralised understanding of internationalism. Because I think that these kinds of compromises or negotiations that artists faced in socialist Europe were not endemic to the region. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at how Western conceptualisms, experimentations with novel methods and the dematerialization of the art object was intimately or inextricably linked to um, careerism, for example, of its key protagonists, 
were an art market booming off the corporate investment of the 1960s, how it was one predicated on a star system which elevated a select few while the others lived in you know, poor, abysmal conditions and really struggled. Um, um, so I think that, and as Magda said, with regards to Julia Bryan Wilson's study on art workers, she's, there she talks about the kind of ambivalence that underpinned class identity in the late 1960s in American art. Um, and so I think that there is a way of kind of globalising it by thinking about these political economies and trying to kind of expand our narrative beyond Eastern Europe. And I think that this is a really important kind of step in that right direction. Um, and to kind of end my mini contribution, I thought I'd just conclude with, with a quote from Susan Buck Morse to think about what the potential relevance of these stories are today. Um, and this is from her essay about the post-Soviet condition. But the argument that I really came to mind when I was thinking about the kind of resonance of this special issue is her uh, seminal book, Dreamworld Dream and Catastrophe, where she's talking about how the Cold War was internal to Western hegemony, how it was not outside of it, and how the socialist experiment failed, at least in part because it mimicked Western developments too faithfully. Um, and so I know it's a polemical note to end on, but I thought it would be a nice kind of an interesting kind of point of discussion to think about how we might expand these kinds of stories to go beyond the kind of familiar Eastern Europe terrain and link them to something bigger, which is what Anthony's project is trying to do as well through his focus on internationalism. I think that that's also another really important kind of dimension of the essays featured in this text, actually. Mm. These kind of international dynamics. I mean, even the essay that's talking about um, Tamar Senchevi and talking about how his work circulated through photography, but these kind of questions of how uh, artists Stemmer, sorry, yeah, days. But um, how how artists try to go beyond these national frameworks, and kind of how there's also an essay about these exhibitions in solidarity as well. So I think that already there are these kinds of um, inklings of a kind of broader art world, um, which maybe we can discuss in more detail in the conversation. Cool. Thank you.